Today's reading comes from chapter 38 of Genesis. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezite that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamara. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son, Shelah, grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah has recovered from his grief, he went to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hirah, for Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Amidulite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. When he asked the men who lived there, where was the shrine prostitute who was beside the Rona Anam? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you did not find her. 
About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I am, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her room. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it onto his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, so this is how you have broken out, and he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you uh, to uh, Lydia for reading that so clearly for us. Uh, Do keep it open in front of you. I suspect one or two questions might be flying around your brains as you sit there. Uh, Hopefully, we'll be able to address some of them as we look at this passage this evening. Uh, It's great uh, to be uh, continuing our sermon series in the book of Genesis as we look at the the life of Joseph. Uh, It might be that you were here last week. This is the second in the series. Uh, If not, all of our sermons are online. You might want to uh, catch up when you you get home. We, we, We said that the autumn term is certainly a time for series, not just in the church week by week, but also on our TV screens. Perhaps you like your autumn series full of melodrama, period interest. Perhaps Poldark or Victoria are just your things. You may have even set the video recorder. That's going back a bit, isn't it? The um, Whatever recording device you have got, you may have set it to record your favourite series, or you might be about to beetle off at the end to make sure you get home in time for Poldark. Perhaps you like to consume your autumn series drama with a slightly more light-hearted take to it, and you might prefer Strictly Come Dancing or The Great British Bake Off. Well, whatever your uh, particular preference in series, uh, we said that this is rather like a kind of a a dramatic soap opera that catches something of everything. Uh, There is is period drama here, there's family intrigue, it looks something like a soap opera. We've also got uh, elements of murder mystery that we were looking at last week, particularly uh, in Genesis 37, and now we arrive at Genesis 38. Here is this dysfunctional family who we've met in this kind of period soap opera docudrama who seem to bring uh, the dis very much into dysfunctional. Uh, They're clearly a family of favourites. They've got a whole deception thing going on. It seems that everything they plan turns out for bad. We saw last week in uh, chapter 37 that God has got a plan for good, that God's plan is a sovereign plan, which he's working out, and it's for sovereign saving 
good. And so that's how we approach this chapter. A dysfunctional family whose plans are so often for bad and a God whose sovereign plan is for good. Even when it seems that the plan isn't working its way out, it is there and it's on track. We've already traced plenty of resonances between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus from chapter 37, and those, surprisingly, are going to continue in chapter 38. Chapter 38 is a bit of an odd one, isn't it? Joseph, the main man, is nowhere to be seen. Uh, The detail is, uh, in many points, totally lurid. It would make most soap operas or TV dramas look rather tame by comparison. If it was looking to get certified for Sunday evening broadcast, it would have trouble. And so you might be asking yourself the question, one, why are we looking at this material in a church? And two, why is it in the Bible at all? And I think they're good questions. But see, here's the response I think we could say to that. Uh, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, says this, of this entire account of the book of Genesis, these last chapters, it summarizes them by saying, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And chapter 38, this particular story, strange, colourful, but true, this story plays its part in saving many lives. And that's what we're going to see this evening, the marvellous outworking of God's sovereign saving plan. However strange it seems, chapter 38 is not just part of God's, in a sense, historic plan. God speaks through his word this evening. So I'm going to pray and pray that God's saving purposes would work their way out through this slightly strange-looking chapter. Shall we pray together, and then we'll get stuck in. So, Lord, we thank you that your plan is for good. Uh, We thank you that you are working your purposes out, and you have been doing that in your faithful, great way through the whole of Scripture. We've been singing about that. We see that as we look back in your Word. But thank you that your Word is not just something that is historic, but it's also present and living and active here this evening. And so we pray that in your word this evening, as we look at it, you would bring us alive. And we pray it for your ongoing saving purposes in us and in your world. Amen. So, the soap opera drama continues. Just have a look at verse uh, 1 and 2. If you shut your Bibles, it's page 42. It would be great to follow with me. Uh, Judah, brother number four of this family, voluntarily leaves his brothers, his, his kinfolk, his family, and he goes to seek his fortune amongst the Canaanite people. He marries a, a Canaanite woman, the, the daughter of Shua, there in verse 2, and uh, together they have three sons who are recorded for us as Ur, Onan, and Shalah. They live at, at Kazib. Kazib, appropriately enough, means deception. It's, a, it's related to the Hebrew word family for to deceive or to lie. So here is a family who, appropriately enough, live in a town called Deception. Uh, Judah finds uh, a wife for his eldest son, Ur. Uh, she's called Tamar. Uh, But we read in verse 7 that Ur was wicked. We don't exactly know how. 
uh, but the Lord puts him to death. Uh, Social cohesion, uh, social welfare provision, societal cohesion at this point really depended on having offspring, particularly male offspring. Uh, You might remember from the story of Ruth that therefore if uh, a man died and left his wife with no children, there was a duty on the part of his brother to produce offspring for his dead brother by sleeping with that dead brother's wife. And we can see that played out there really in in very concise terms in verse 8. If you want to check out a little bit about that, it's called Leverate Marriage, and it's detailed in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. You can also see it referred to in Matthew 22, verse 24. Well, whatever the responsibilities and duties, Onan solidly refuses to fulfill his responsibility, not out of some kind of 21st century prudishness, but out of a rigid refusal to father any children who might be considered as his elder brother's offspring and so therefore might have some claim on inheritance rights. And so verse 7 as a refrain becomes verse 10 as a refrain, and we read the same words. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. And then there was one son, Shelah. Well, uh, Judah promises him to Tamar so that she can have children uh, when Shelah grows up, there in verse 11. But in keeping with the spirit of deception that seems so rife within this family, Judah clearly has no intention of honouring his proposal, and so he sends kind of Tamar back to her father, uh, hopeful Uh, but ultimately deceived. By verse 14, the story's moving quite quickly, isn't it? By verse 14, Tamar realises that she's been duped, so she goes in for a little deception of her own. She disguises herself as a prostitute, and she sits in Judah's path. Judah doesn't know it's his uh, daughter-in-law when he pays to sleep with her, but finding that he's got no payment, offers to send a goat. Uh, In an act of really remarkable irresponsibility, he leaves his seal and his staff there in verse 18 because he hasn't got the goat to hand. And so he leaves his seal and his staff as a deposit. It would be the equivalent of the king or queen of England leaving the great seal of state and the crown jewels with somebody they just met as a deposit, Barack Obama leaving the great presidential seal of the presidential office that seems to follow him around on the podiums that he speaks at. It would be the equivalent of a general leaving their baton with somebody as a deposit. Remarkably irresponsible. Well, the story from this point unravels, I guess, as it uh, is set to do. Uh, Judah sends the payment of a goat. Uh, Tamar's nowhere to be found. He covers up his embarrassment. She becomes pregnant. He sentences her to death for prostitution. She reveals the seal and the staff. He recognizes his guilt and two sons result. Do you see that? It's down there in verse 27 following. 
two sons, Perez and Zerah. You can almost at this point hear the East Enders drum beats as the kind of the episode draws to a close, kind of like the dum 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 dum, dum. and then yes, you can imagine the rest of the tune. Here endeth the reading. Uh, let's just hit pause on all that kind of soap opera for a moment and uh, whisk up some kind of light relief courtesy of the Bake Off. If your preferred autumn series uh, is uh, via Mel and uh, Sue and via Mary Berry and Paul Hollywood, you'll be familiar with the technical challenge at the heart of the Bake Off programme. For those of you who don't like the programme at all, let me just describe it to you. Uh, what happens is in the middle of the programme, there is a technical challenge, uh, a, a cake or a bake, uh, that the contestants normally have never seen in their life before. And so they get underway, and as they get underway, the camera cuts to Mary Berry and Paul Hollywood enjoying a nice, relaxed cup of tea. Pandemonium's breaking loose over here, but they're sat down with tea. It's all very comforting. Uh, and between them is a slice picture perfect, clearly not baked by them, it's baked by the home economists listed on the credits at the end, but anyway, baked, that they sit down and enjoy and say how perfect it is. Well, at time's up, the contestants put their offerings before Mary and Paul, and Mary and Paul judge them against this image of perfection that we've seen, that they've just tasted, uh, and that the contestants have no idea about at all. Uh, how do the various bakes compare to perfection? Uh, it's stretching the parallel a little bit, but back to Genesis 38, and we have a certain amount of compare and contrast going on here. It's a kind of biblical spot, the difference. How does Judah and the actions of him and his family, how do they compare to the sheer perfection of a perfect God. So that's what we're going to do now for the main bulk of our time here, is just to actually play this biblical spot, the difference, uh, competition, if you like. And we're going to look at three particular differences, uh, mainly in kind of order of the story. Uh, difference uh, number one, I think, is that we notice from the outset just how sadly non-distinctive the actions of Judah and his family are. Here we've got God's chosen people. They've been chosen through a series of calls in Genesis. You might remember Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. A series of calls and very special covenants to be God's holy and special people. But here in chapter 38, their values and their behavior are just the same as everybody else around them, whether or not they happen to be God's people. Judah, verse 1, seemed to find no issue with uh, separating himself from God's people. He sees no problem in marrying somebody from a different culture, a culture whose values were so utterly apart and opposed to the values of the one true God, in verse 2. Ur and uh, Onan, uh, his sons were were utterly wicked in an entirely non-colloquial sense in verses 7 and 10. And Judah stands by a town gate and offers to pay a supposed stranger for sex. 
Um, sadly, a far from uncommon practice, but hardly the behavior that you would expect for God's distinctive holy people. Uh, more than that, he's prepared to give away his staff and his seal in the process. Whether you take them corporately or whether you take them individually, these actions of this particular family do not measure up to God's standards. They're really just like everyone else. In comparison, God's actions are truly distinct. They're just, they're pure, uh, they're holy. In fact, they're, they're so just, they're so pure, they're so holy. I'm not sure about you, but they're, they're really thoroughly shocking. You see, God's so concerned about his holiness that not just once, but twice, he puts Judah's sons to death. We find it challenging stuff, and, and, and I think that's appropriate. It is challenging material. Certainly when I'm talking to people about Christian faith, uh, if not this, then other examples of God defending his holiness seem often to be stark and shocking. I wonder whether we were asking ourselves that question as we were reading through, we're putting them to death. Isn't that a bit much, God? We live in the age of the creative compromise. And so often, creative compromises can be useful and helpful, kind of giving things away, meeting people halfway uh, to uh, ensure agreement. That all seems to be part of our current deal of doing business. But the creator of all the ages doesn't creatively compromise when it comes to the issue of his holiness. He doesn't give his staff and seal away. He's holy and he rules in sovereign purity. That's difference number one. Difference number two, uh, as we kind of compare Judah's imperfections to God's sheer perfection, is all to do with, with truth it's clear we know that Judah and his family are deceivers and schemers. So this family who have grown up in this town called Deception seem to have made cheating on each other a bit of a way of life. Just as you cast your eyes over the story, Onan uh, cheats in his conduct of that Leverate marriage. Uh, Judah deceives Tamar concerning the promise of Shelah to be her husband. Uh, Judah tries to cover up his own embarrassment. Tamar deceives uh, Judah. There's a lot of deceit going on in this town called deception. In comparison, God doesn't live in a town called deception. 1 Timothy 6.16, God lives in inapproachable light. And God's character is to bring the truth to light. And so he swiftly deals with Ur and Onan. He exposes their wickedness and its clear cost. He exposes Judah's deceitfulness, his lack of distinctive holiness. Judah and company seem to cover up 
and go from bad to worse, God exposes truth and ultimately he does it for saving goodness and grace. And that leads us into difference number three. And difference number three is really one of motivation and interest. You see, Judah and his family so often hatch their plots motivated by short-term self-interest. You can just see as we look through the story the economic benefit for Judah of going down to Canaan and marrying into a Canaanite family. The the benefits for for Onan of not fulfilling his responsibility towards his brother. The the in-the-moment sexual desire in Judah, which causes him to abandon his seal and his staff, short-lived self-interest. In comparison with these actions, uh, God acts out of an eternal perspective of self-giving grace. Although we can't necessarily see the full extent of it yet, God has got a sovereign plan for good. It's for Judah's good to save Judah. It's for his family's good to save them. And ultimately, it's for the blessing of all God's people and all nations through them. God is selflessly good and gracious. You see, out of this, did you see down in verse 27, Perez is born verse 29. Uh, You can check out Perez's family tree if uh, you're listening to this sermon online or if you're taking notes. You can check that uh, genealogy out uh, in Ruth chapter 4 verses 18 to 22 uh, or in Matthew chapter 1. It's all there recorded for us. Perez is the ancestor of King David. Perez is the ancestor of King David who is the ancestor of Jesus. Jesus is the man from God standing among us who, in complete sheer perfection, embodies in a form that we can understand the perfect holiness, the sovereign truth, and the complete self-giving grace of God. This chapter, strange but true, is about holiness, it's about truth, and it's about grace. And so, as we start to draw things to a conclusion, I wonder what we can learn from this chapter. Uh, I guess comparing and contrasting is part of our way of life, isn't it? Uh, It's uh, often a, a good and helpful thing to do. It's quite often how we make economic societal, cultural decisions and make informed choices. Uh, We compare share prices, perhaps the value of Sports Direct in the last week, as an indicator of economic performance and the maturity of the leadership of the company. Uh, We compare league tables for schools, somewhat in the news over the last few days, as an indicator of a school's quality of education. We, 
we compare how we act now with how we may have acted 10 or 20 years ago as an indicator of whether we've matured, whether we've, we've grown. So much of what we do is based on comparison and contrasting. But here's the thing with comparisons. Comparisons are only as good as the comparator. A comparison is only as good as our choice of comparator. Who are we comparing ourselves to. Uh, comparing our character and our actions to those of somebody else around us uh, can sometimes be a bit challenging, but I'm not sure about you. By and large, it's rather encouraging. Uh, and that's because I've taught myself, I'm not sure whether you're the same, I've taught myself to choose a comparator who's unlikely to make me feel too bad. Uh, the kind of thing goes through my mind. Uh, it was interesting that Paul picked up the same phrase this morning in his sermon. Uh, we say to ourselves, look, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as him over there. Or, or well, well, you're picking on me for doing that, but she would have done exactly the same thing. We pick comparators who make us feel good. But I wonder what it looks like if we compare our lives to sheer perfection. What if we compare our lives and our actions to God, to his holiness, to his truth, and to his grace? We've had some uh, fun with that Bake Off illustration in the various autumn series we've mentioned, but actually it lets us down in two really rather important ways. One of them we mentioned last week, one of them uh, we didn't. Uh, if you weren't here last week, the first way in which that illustration lets us down is that TV is something that we view from the outside. We sit there goggle-boxed, and we, we look in at the lives of the people in front of us, but somehow we're divorced from the people we see in front of us. And rather like Gogglebots in the TV, we kind of, we, we pass comment. We're viewing their lives from the outside. But you see, the drama of the Bible is a drama in which we're fully involved. We're fully implicated. Whether we like it or not, we are part of the action. You see, Genesis 38, strange but true, is your story and my story. Strange but true. By nature... So often, those of us who would call ourselves Christians are not as distinctive as we could be in living as God's people. We're not holy. Sometimes, whether it's by our own design or whether it's by the schemes of others or whether it's more commonly by a combination of the two, we make compromises where we shouldn't. We perhaps give away sacred or holy ground, and we give it away for often short-term comfort. We're not always transparently truthful. Sometimes we can plot. We're very often uh, self-seeking in our motivation, and I'm often lacking in grace. Genesis 38 invites me, invites me and you, to compare ourselves to the sheer perfection of God. And that's the other way that our illustration from Bake Off lets us down slightly. You see, in the Bake Off tent, the competitors labor in darkness. Not literal darkness, but they've normally never baked the thing that they're being asked to bake in the technical challenge at all, and they've certainly never seen sheer perfection. They labor and they strive, 
based only on their own efforts, their own wits and the mixing power of a KitchenAid food processor, they labour not knowing what sheer perfection actually looks like. Whereas in contrast, God makes himself known. His actions in Genesis up to this point, his actions in the rest of the Bible, the very act of giving us scripture, of sending Jesus supremely amongst us, shows us that he wants to make himself known. He wants us to know what his holiness looks like, what his truth looks like, and what his grace looks like as well. Perfection is not hidden from us. So we we could go for the short-term feel-good kick of comparing ourselves to others who are less than perfect. But if we've got the guts, we could compare ourselves to God and consider ourselves in the light of his holiness, in his sovereign truth, and in his grace. And if that's the case, the story, interestingly, has rather a different ending. Uh, A bit like last week, here's a little bit of a spoiler alert. Uh, Here's how Genesis comes into land, which we'll see in a few weeks' time. You see, this isn't the end for Judah. Here's an episode in his life, but we're not going to land until chapter 50. And God hasn't finished with Judah yet. He hasn't finished with any of us yet. In comparing his actions to God's holiness... In comparing his deceit to God's truth, in comparing his self-interest to God's grace, Judah, rather than being destroyed, is transformed. And he's transformed for good. In chapter 44, this previously self-interested, lying, deceitful, unholy chap stands, or at least offers to stand in place of his brother, he offers himself into slavery. This was Judah who had sold Joseph into slavery in the previous chapter. By chapter 44, Judah is offering himself in the place of his brother, modeling God's grace. By chapter 49, this chap who, for short-term self-interest, gave away his seal and his staff, we read in chapter 49 that Jacob blesses him with these words, "'You are a lion's cub, O Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet.'" You see, Judah sees God for who he is. He sees himself for who he is in light of God. And he's transformed because of it. And from his line comes Perez and David and Jesus, who Revelation describes for us not as the cub of Judah, but as the lion of Judah. Jesus who himself, whose rule of holiness and whose rule of truth and whose rule of grace is never going to end. Let's just end with that 
refrain from Genesis chapter 50. Uh, True for chapter 50, but true for each element of Genesis working its way out. God intended it for good. Even this strange but true story, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Let me pray, and then Joe and the band are going to lead us uh, in another song. So our Father God, we thank you that your intention is for good and for rescue and for saving. We thank you that you are holy and that you are true and that you are full of grace. And so please, by your Spirit, would you give us the holy boldness to look at our lives in the light of your holiness, truth, and grace. Because although challenging, we recognize that in doing so, there lies the hope of transformation. Transformation which is not just for our own salvation through Jesus, but also for the salvation of many through our lives. We pray it for your glory. Amen.